I think a lot of things, but the one that I think I'm going to talk about <laughs> now is, you know, I, I think in June, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of state colleges put out, universities put out statements. There were a lot of different organizations that were saying things about how to move forward. There's a lot of people who are committing to learning. And I started to re-see some of those things in the last month because more of the things around um, what was happening in Asian American communities was was coming up and people were, you know, I'm, I'm going to commit to learning. And, and I think I have just decided, no, learning was the expectation, right? Like we're supposed to do that. The point of learning though, all, all of these things that we were learning about anti-Blackness and how to combat anti-Asian hate and all these other things, right? Was to apply it. I need people to apply it now, right? Like there, there's a lot of things that have been said um, and and a lot of, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go read about that. Okay. And then come back and tell me what you're going to do about it. Hello, and welcome to Student Affairs Now. I'm your host, Dr. Glenn de Guzman. Today, we have some folks who have known for a very long time and have earned a reputation for the research and work supporting Asian, Pacific Islander, and Desi American APIDA students, faculty, and staff. I've had the honor of learning from them for many years, so I am so excited to have them on today as we just talk story but the ongoing challenges facing our APIDA communities on college campuses. Student Affairs Now is a premier podcast and learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We hope that you'll find these conversations make a contribution to the field and are restorative to the profession. We release new episodes every Wednesday, so you can find us at studentaffairsnow.com or on Twitter. And today's episode is sponsored by Anthology, which is formerly Campus Labs. And for those new to Anthology, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful assessment data collection site. Um, it's, if your goal is to engage in effective assessment, boost data fluency, and empower staff with strategic data collection to do documented analysis and use those results for change, um, it's a great place to go. No matter where your campus is in the assessment journey, Anthology can help you figure out what's next with a short assessment. You'll receive customized results, tailored recommendations to address your most immediate assessment needs. So if you want to learn more about Anthology's products and, and, and meet with their expert consult, consultants um, to empower your division with actionable data, go ahead and visit campuslabs.com forward slash SA hyphen now. This episode is also sponsored by Stylus Publishing. Browse their student affairs, diversity, and professional development titles at stylistpub.com. And we still have that essay now, 30% off um, promo code. So get 30% off all your books uh, that you want, and you also get free shipping. You can find Stylist on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn, and at Twitter at, at Stylist Pub. As I mentioned, I'm your host, Glenda Guzman. I'm the Associate Dean of Students and Director of Residential Life at the University of California, Berkeley. I use the he series as my pronouns, and I'm hosting this conversation today from my home in Livermore, California, which is the ancestral homeland of the Ohlone peoples. And before we meet our panelists, I do want to acknowledge that when we scheduled this episode, it preceded the horrific acts of violence, murders, and anti-Asian violence in Atlanta, in Boulder, in San Francisco, and even in my own backyard in Albany, California. I feel compare, compelled 
to share that we are coming into this space with a range of emotions and even made some modifications to this episode to allow us to speak our truth of the moment. We hope that by the time this episode airs, many in our APEDA community have found moments of peace and clarity, have begun to heal, and also that finding that renewed sense of purpose to continue the struggle before us and our BIPOC siblings. I know how hard it is for all of us to be here. So with much love and appreciation, let's meet our panelists. I'm gonna start with Jackie. Hi. Hi, my name is Jackie Mack. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm a visiting assistant professor of higher education at Northern Illinois University, which is located on ancestral and unceded lands of the Kickapoo, Peoria, Sauk and Meskwaki, Potawatomi, Miami, and Sioux peoples, what we now refer to as DeKalb, Illinois. I am a Southeast Asian American woman and daughter of refugees, and this explicit naming of who I am and how I come to identify myself would not have been possible seven, eight years ago. Um, and it's this fact and this understanding that draws me to our conversation today. So much of who I am and what I do is because of Asian American studies. It gave me a space to explore myself. It helped me build and develop skills to view my family and my community as the center of my work, um, which had so often been a footnote, if that, um, through my formal schooling. And so I bring my identities, my ethnic studies roots, um, as, and my uh, professional work in student affairs and um, nonprofit organization context to my scholarship and teaching now. Uh, right now, my work is largely focused on race, racism, and racialization, institutional transformation towards equity, and higher education policy. I'm also particularly interested in minority-serving institutions, um, as they have a lot of wisdom to teach the rest of the field on how to do right by marginalized students. Thank you, Jackie. Welcome. Vijay. Hello, everyone. Um, um, thank you for having me. My name is Vijay Kanagala. I identify as a Generation 1.5 queer Desi South Asian, and I use he, him pronouns. Um, I'm, a, I'm an associate professor and coordinator of the higher education and student affairs program at Salem State University, which is situated upon the traditional ancestral and unceded lands of the Namkeg Indians, the Nambashinek. Um, of the Massachusetts Pawtuck tribes, First Nations, which we call Salem today, Salem, Massachusetts. Um, and I, when I say I'm Generation 1.5, I also recognize that I am explicitly a settler colonizer, and I want to pay respects to the elders, the, you know, past and present, as well as do my part to ensure that the future generations are harmed in the work that I uh, am trusted to do. Um, when I, when I talk about Desi South Asian, I also want to mention that I am of Telugu descent by heritage. Um, and I also say claim Tamil identity, um, which is where I grew up in India, Madras. Um, right? And um, my immediate and extended family immigrated, um, you know, they ended the, the, the whole idea of chain migration, immigration process, either through education or work. And um, and I was pursuing my doctorate in microbiology at Iowa State University, the name's Iowa. Um, and I real quickly realized that that was not what I wanted to do. Um, and through a series of, you know, long story short, series of events, uh, was found myself at the doorsteps of um, student affairs, uh, was brought in gently nurtured by a community of black student affairs professionals. Um, 
And so my entry point into race and race and ethnicity came in from from a from a black identity perspective. Um, and, and I you know attended the the national national conference on race and ethnicity NCOR. And I think it was that moment when I attended the conference gave me the language of my existence of you know the things that I that I experienced as an immigrant, but didn't have the language to name it, partly because my family didn't talk about um, race or ethnicity. And so what did it mean for me to be a racialized body became very significant. And so, so over the years, it, it became a journey of exploration and self-discovery of my own racial ethnic identity, um, but also trying to situate myself in the racial identity politics that we have to kind of work through, um, you know, living, living in the US, um, right? And so, so broadly, when I think about race and ethnicity and thinking about Desi South Asian, um, I'm trying to understand, part, as part of my research, the the identity, uh, the, the meaning making that you know, college students and students as professionals who identify as Desi South Asian um, navigate and go through. And um, and for folks that might be listening, there is actually a, a Desi Student Professionals group on, on Facebook. So um, try to reach out to us. Uh, it's a strong group of 302 folks as of today. So I'm excited. Wonderful, thank you. We'll add that to this, uh, the notes um, at the end as well for folks to access on our website. Welcome. Wendy. Hi, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Wendy Sasaki. I use she and they series pronouns. Um, I currently work at the University of California at San Diego, which is on the unceded territory of the Kumeyaay people um, in La Jolla and San Diego, California. Um, so I identify as a fourth generation Japanese American and a third generation Chinese American and Filipino American. Um, and it was really important to my family, uh, my parents, that we understood as kids growing up that we were one mixed and two, that we understood the differences between what was Japanese, what was Chinese, specifically Cantonese, um, different than some of the other Chinese Americans who were around us who were Shanghainese um, and what, what was Filipino, right? And, and that we had some ways to, to navigate some of those types of things because they were going to show up and, um, and, and my parents wanted us to understand those things differently. Um, what, what, they want, what my parents wanted us to be proud of though when I was growing up and things like that were things that um, other kids who most of the kids around me in Sacramento, um, California were not mixed did not value, right? <laughs> like, um, it, it's this interesting thing about the ways that from very young ages, kids kind of talk to you about um, your identity and who you are and what that means, right? Um, and, and weird hierarchies that people make up. So it was this, it, it has always been this interesting part of my life of understanding some of this long history, relatively, that my family has in the U.S. and um, uh, through uh, through multiple means of what that meant for how my family got here, um, especially as working class folks, right? And then um, kind of what that has meant to to end up working in student affairs um, through um, ACPA have been a past um, Asian Pacific American network chairs has Jackie and Glenn. Um, to, to running an office and starting an office. I'm the first person to have uh, my job at UC San Diego as the Asian Pacific Islander, Middle East and Thursday American program manager at a campus that I graduated from. And so what has this meant, right? To 
try and build something that I would have needed that includes all of the people that this really big name <laughs> includes in ways that understands folks. And so I feel like there's some ways that I had to learn that around how do I feel comfortable around people um, who are going to identify differently or see me as identifying differently than them, even if I think it's similar. And what does this mean for this larger group that I'm trying to bring together and make sure that they feel like they have a home on our campus. Thank you, Wendy. Um, for, I want to thank all of you for sharing your, your backstory. I think that's really important to this conversation. And Wendy, I'm going to stay with you. And you talked about the big name, right? And, and the, the, we, we all, the, the various identities that we bring. And we know that in 1968, the term Asian American was born. And it really was an effort to unify the community, taking an approach similar to the, the Black Power Movement, uh, the American Indian Movement. And, and, and it really had an agenda to combat anti-Asian racism and, and really the pursuit of equality and so forth. And, but many within our Asian American community, uh, how defined, still struggle to embrace the identifier, that identifier and that term Asian American. And that is a challenge that, and I think our profession struggles with as well. And how do we characterize just the term Asian Pacific Islander and Desi American student experience? Yeah, it's, you know, it's really um, complicated. Yeah, my, um, my title in my office and the ways that we're kind of going through and, and talking with people about who we're talking about, my, my office also includes Middle Eastern American people, but separate from that, right? Like it would be a PETA. I go in explaining to people, um, especially people who um, in community who don't necessarily see themselves as Asian American or identify with a PETA as a, as a um, identity kind of marker, right? Um, that 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 term Asian American in 1968 was uh, coined by college students at UC Berkeley as a coalition term. Part of part of that was to be able to build coalitions with other people of color and uh, people who were working around some of the Black Power movement, and also to talk about what they needed on campus. And most of those populations at UC Berkeley in 1968 were Chinese American, Japanese American, and Filipino American. Filipino American was a lot smaller though. So when the, the Chinese and Japanese, primarily Chinese American and Japanese American people came together to talk about that, it, they were told individually that they were too small for the campus to be concerned about them. But if they came together, they were a larger number of people to go through. And so they saw that as a coalition and a way for them to be in coalition with other people and to talk about what that meant for other people that might come into this grouping of, of people that at the time were considered Asian non-white, right? And then the government has also at some point decided they were going to use that term to classify folks and add folks to. Um, so that's how you see it on the census. They have moved people over. So eventually they moved the South Asian populations to this group. Um, didn't know how to talk about Pacific Islander people. So just kind of added them. So that must be the same. And then kind of created this weird Asian and Pacific Islander kind of marker. And and then other people, as more people from different parts of Asia started to immigrate to the U.S., go, well, like, well, they're in Asia, so they go into this category. So you have this group of people, a lot of who came after 1968, you know, or had some, some part of the way that they identified after 1968, get told that this is, this is the grouping that you're in. 
but that's not how people have come to understand themselves or whatever, you know, the ways that, that they have taught it, have, have come to the U.S. or learned about their culture and their identity because it was a coalition word, not a cultural word, not something that said, hey, everybody in this group is the same, but these cultural words, or the, this is a coalition word, right, which meant that people who are in it actively chose to be in it and, and um, participate in this way. And so what I see on the other side, when I go to staff and say, this is who I'm working with, these are coalition words, they're like, yeah, but everyone's the same, right? No, <laughs> no, there's, you know, like if, if we're ha- talking about folks who might have um, family members who are themselves immigrants, we're talking that maybe they might be speaking one of 60 different languages, um, there are different cultural holidays and all the other things that we bring with us in our identities, you know, different gender identities, um, sexual orientations, religions, um, class, ways that folks came and what that means. At, on my campus, about half of our undocumented students are Asian American, right? Um, and, and all of these other things that are part of how we relate with one another and, and, and identify. And it's not simple, right? It doesn't kind of just boil down to a couple of things where it's easy for me to answer a question when someone says, hey, hey Wendy, you work with APETA students. What, what do they need on campus? What's one thing I can do? <laughs> and they want something easy, like active, that they could just change and it switches and people feel good. And the one thing that I'm usually telling them to do is to listen to their students and understand that they're different. They want you to understand that a lot of us have a lot of different kinds of experience. My um, third generation Chinese Cantonese American identity, especially as a mixed Chinese Cantonese American person is really different than a lot of the other Chinese American students that they're interacting with currently on campus who might be first generation or I had a student tell me he was eighth generation Chinese American, right? Those are really different kinds of experiences just just in this one ethnic group. So what is, you know, so it's really complex, um, but people want to understand it as something that's really simple. Right, and, and you're really capturing the, the challenge in all of this and the complexity of the term and how it has a coalition meaning, yet it also may dismiss the, the, vari- the various and the diverse identities within the, the, the larger PEN community. Um, I want to unpack that a little bit, and Vijay, I'd like to hear from you the inter- how the intersectionalities of that all exist. So, so does this term, this Asian American term, truly capture our identity as a community and the various social, generational, all of the, uh, the, uh, all of the above type intersectionalities that exist? Yeah, no, absolutely. No, I, I, as Wendy was talking, I you know it jogged my memory about um, how when our family moved here, um, and this has nothing to do with the, the question that you asked, Glenn. Um, this is more so in terms of thinking about how when we're filling out applications, now you had you know, African or black, uh, the box that you had to check, right? Or you had Asian, uh, Asian American, and then you had um, sometimes American Indian slash Native American or Alaska you know, Native, right? And I distinctly remember our family debating if we were Asian American or uh, American Indian because we recognize the Indian part, right? And, and come, when I say they see South Asian, I'm thinking about the Indian part of who I am, right? Um, and so, so that kind of like gives gives a sense. But, but I think I think I think the the point that Wendy was also you know, just adding to what she was saying is um, when, when people are talking about 
Asian Americans or Apita folks in, in, in the broadest possible sense, the heterogeneity of who we are, um, of, of, of our makeup uh, as a racial ethnic um, you know, group is often lost in wanting, you know, wanting to homogenize us, right? But even within the heterogeneity of who we are, uh, people forget that there's a lot more diversity within our group, right? Whether it is based on sub-ethnic groups, clans, caste, religion. Um, you know, when you talked about immigration status and I have family that came right after the 1965 you know, act was passed. And, and then we have waves of families that came in the 90s you know, when we had the, the dot-com bubble and then we have folks that came in the 2000s. And so, so you, you see these generations, even within my own family that I've noticed uh, in terms of who and how we identify. And it's interesting to see the, the difference in terms of how the first generation immigrant community might you know, identify themselves as. Um, and then you have the first generation American born um, you know, community and, and what does it mean for them to actually coexist and, and, and have an identity of Asian American or you know, a PETA, right? And, and then the other part of what, what this also doesn't necessarily do is um, when we talk about intersectionality, the power structures that exist between our communities, um, now from back home, right? Quote unquote home, because obviously we have to call that as home and not this as home, right? And so within that context, um, when I think about South Asians, you know, the tensions between Pakistanis and Indians or uh, whether it's Christian and Hindu or Hindu and Muslim, right? Those tensions that exist before that we still bring, that, 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 um, that pain, right? Uh, we, we still bring that with us and it, it's, it's, it's something that we exist with. And I still remember this, I, I'll never forget this. This is one of my first few years of working in student affairs uh, as a student professional. And um, there was a Pakistani American um, kid, you know, student who I had to advise, who was a new student. And the father came in and noticed that I was, you know, this Indian guy. And his first reaction was, no, I want somebody else. Right? And the, the tension that existed, right? And in, in the, the amount of healing that needed to happen after that, not only for the student, but for myself. And, and, all of those things are not necessarily understood because we tend to call us around this one identity of who we are, right? So I'll, I'll stop there. And, and let's, I'm going to stay with you, Vijay, because you, you, you hit a, a truth for, um, um, in your story. And, and, and I know how you, um, how you identify and the, the term Desi may not be fully understood with many folks. Uh, I'm curious to learn more about its origin and if you could expand and share more on, on this term. Sure. Um, so so you know, just following up on, um, on Wendy's comment about how um, higher education and even, even racial categories were being formed, right? And we had Asian American, Asian Pacific American, Asian American Pacific Islander, um, all off the offshoots of Asian American. Like that's, the, that's the, what I think of as another term. Um, in, and when you think about the, the prevalence and the, the, the slow growth and in involvement of South Asians in higher ed, especially within the, the discipline of student affairs, um, you, you, see, um, you, you see a growth of, you know, of, of what I call my people in, in the profession and recognizing that those terms don't actually or necessarily speak to my experience and my existence, right? And so 
um, over the years, um, you know, we've talked about it. And then you know, Dr. Mahuta Akapati, who's the Vice Provost of Student Life at, at uh, University of Pennsylvania, uh, she proposed and expanded the term uh, API to, uh, from APIA to APIDA, right? Uh, Asian Pacific Islander Desi American. And, we, and that's how the PETA term came to be uh, as a way for us to acknowledge that they see part of the Asian uh, heterogeneity of who we are. Um, and, and so, so I say that, and then I'll, before I actually explain what Desi means, I'll also say that um, the use of Desi is also, um, it's not necessarily embraced by everyone. Not everybody wants to say they, I'm a Desi. Uh, it's not without controversy. Um, and I'll, I'll explain why that might happen uh, within our group. Um, but Desi in itself is actually uh, a word that has origins in Sanskrit and is a Hindu and a Urdu word, a Desh, right? Desh meaning country or homeland. And it's uh, and Desi is the person, uh, and it's a pre-colonial term that means native or indigenous, uh, referring to the the peoples of the pre-colonial uh, Indian subcontinent. And even within that, we privilege Indian, right? Um, we don't say we don't use another um, uh, framework to call the subcontinent. Um, and so, when you think about the Indian subcontinent, you know, uh, we have several nation states, so that that exist as of today, right? So. So we have India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Bhutan, Nepal, Sri Lanka, and Maldives. And sometimes Afghanistan gets uh, included as part of that um, because of how, you know, if you go back uh, 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 thousands of years ago, uh, that, that there existed that, that, that um, uh, geographic territory uh, as part of the, the larger community. And so when you think about Desi, uh, it's a in-group, identification, uh, much like how we, we speak about Latino and Hispanic as two terms, right? Hispanic was coined by um, the government for the census. And then you have Latino, which is much more uh, now from the community based on geography and not necessarily language. And so in this case, we're also using a very similar analogy, if you will, of referring to they see as people from the land. And, and these are the lands that they come from. Um, and, and then, when you think about it being adopted um, over generations, you know, whether it's first generation immigrants or second generation or much later um, in, in relationship with the word, you know, the, the phrase uh, South Asian, um, it, it's, it's accepted and it's, it's contested, right? You have both of those happening. Um, and it's also one of those words because of its Hindi and now Urdu origins um, is, is contested in a way that it's, that it's not inclusive, right? It's linguistically not uh, Northern subcontinent, right? So when you think about Pakistani um, or, uh, or the Northern part of India, uh, these are the folks that tend to use it. And so when you have South, A South Indians within the group, you now people who, whose origins are Dravidian um, and then you have Sri Lankans uh, who often don't think of themselves as Desi, right? The idea of South Asian may appeal to them, but not necessarily as Desi. Um, and then this is something that I, a few years ago, I met a doctoral student um, who also introduced the idea of, of the diaspora. So when you have uh, the South Asian community living in the Pacific Islands, living in the Caribbean, living in Africa, uh, you know, migrated either because of their own will or as you now forced laborers, 
um, to Australia, to Oceania, right? So, and so on. So you have these communities also who either use or don't use partly because of the tensions that exist between their own you know, systems of migration that they had to endure. Um, I think um, when I, the, the other part of, you know, what I also think about is um, what we think of countries today, uh, nation states is India and Pakistan, uh, Bangladesh. These were all different princely states, um, different um, communities that coexisted for centuries, right? Uh, in, and when the British colonized or when the Portuguese colonized um, different parts of you know, uh, that subcontinent, um, you have this idea of, um, of, not, of not necessarily connecting with each other, right? You, the, the, the divisions are so, and says divide and rule is, is what we think of India and Pakistan, right? And um, in, when you think of these, these centuries of hardships and subjugation and, and, and literal um, deep colonizer wounds that people had to endure for generations. So you have, again, generational trauma that comes into being. And then you know, uh, when you have modern states that are pitted against each other um, based on religion, language, caste and skin color, uh, these are the primary ways in which um, those, those countries were formed. Um, you you have deep distrust of each other, right? And so so then you bring that history and those wounds and that trauma into another migration pattern to the U.S. Uh, or to North America because Canada also sees this. Um, and we're trying to use one word to capture all of us. We're trying to unify us, right? And we have 400 years of of, of deep trauma that nobody actually thinks about. Um, or, or wants to address or is clueful about, right? And so that's one part. Um, the other part that I just quickly wanted to mention was um, how, I think, I think Wendy was talking about this earlier uh, in terms of where do, where do I situate myself as a South Asian and the, in, in, in the racial categorization that we see in the US, right? And uh, Vinay Harpalani, he's a legal scholar, a good friend. Um, he ended up writing uh, and introduced the idea of Desi Crit, which is an offshoot of Asian crit, but which is an offshoot of critical race theory, right? And so, so within Asian American critical race theory, he then constructed and, 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 and theorized what Desi Crit was. And part of it was, you now he talks about this, this notion of, uh, we're, we're kind of like put in between black and white paradigms, right? But we're also asked to be racial uh, in, in racial solidarity with Asians so that we could ascribe to you now blackness uh, and not necessarily to whiteness because then you know we, we have uh, we have history of ascribing to whiteness um, and, and so he brings in that idea um, and, and within Daisy Crit, he's also wanting us to think about how um, South Asians can become more race conscious Right? And so how do you become aware of your own ambiguous? And that's the way that he talks about, uh, you know, because we can blend in um, and not talk about race and exist, yet, you know, have either benefit from, from not, not participating in, in racial discourse 
or being victims of racial discourse, right? So, so he, he gets into that kind of a, a discourse. And, um, and, and, uh, and, 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 and I, think, I think part of um, when you think about Daisy, um, like I mentioned, I think, I think people use it, um, but don't necessarily understand how it applies. Um, and often uses it as synony in a synonymous um, term to South Asian. And so what does it really mean? And, I, and the other part of it is, now we have to mention this, is um, we have a vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris, right? Who is um, the first black woman, uh, black American, and, and is also the first South Asian, Indian American woman um, to, to become the vice president, to be elected the vice president, right? And, and so what does it mean for us to, to engage and have conversations around the term Daisy? Um, and I specifically think about um, folks only understanding South Asian as a unique group. Again, going back to the Asian heterogeneity of who we are, within the South Asian group, there's such a diversity of who we are based on religion, based on caste, based on um, language. Um, and, and so how do we then account for all of that? And so when, 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 when you hear, um, I think it's uh, Kamala Harris's acceptance speech and she uses the word chitti right now and she, she recognizes her aunts, that's a Tamil word, right? And so Twitter just blew up when that happened, right? It just like, everybody was like, oh, oh my God, like, no, she, like, you cannot believe that the, the future vice president or a vice presidential candidate would actually use a Tamil word, right? And, um, and I think to me, that was kind of like, it felt like she was introducing Tamil American identity to all of us. She became that person, right? Uh, in addition to her being a black woman, so. Thank you so much for providing that, uh, that, that overview. And, and, and there's lots of knowledge and information in what you just shared. I learned quite a bit. So thank you for sharing that. I'm going to shift and we're going to bring Jackie into this conversation. And um, Jackie, we have known about the model minority myth for decades. And, and I remember writing about it when I was in grad school and it's still here. What, what is it and why is it still persisting on college campuses? It was a period of time um, that if I heard that phrase, I had like a visceral reaction to it. And I probably still do to some extent. And it's a really good question, Glenn. And it's probably one that we can, I mean, any of the questions you've posed, we could spend a whole episode and then some, right? Kind of really getting into the depths of the complexity. Um, so I'll try, I'll, I'll try to do both, right? Try to, try to talk generally about it, but also get, give some specificities in the terms of, in the form of stories. So the myth is commonly you know, talked about and characterized as Asians are doing fine. Um, they don't need any help. They experience universal success. Um, Asians are outperforming white students. The Asians are doing better than our other uh, black and Latinx student populations or Latinx student populations, so they're fine. Um, another way to define the myth is to consider for, uh, consider for context, right, why it exists and to define it as a white supremacist racial project that strategically frames Asian and Asian Americans as a universally successful group. And I specifically said Asian and Asian American because that's typically who is talked about at the expense of other groups under this heterogeneous group that we've already spent a bit of time really kind of grappling with, right? Um, and that type of framing is really integral to maintaining larger systems of oppression. So it's 
important to understand that it's not just harmful for Asian, Asian Americans, APEDA members, or those who are perceived to be Asian, Asian American, but the framing also enacts different forms of violence on all communities of color. So I'll talk a little bit more about that um, and more specifically to what it might look like on the college campus. Um, this violence looks like the racial exclusion of Asian Americans and sometimes Pacific Islanders from many aspects of academ the academic and social fabric of that particular community. Uh, for example, it might look like um, omitting um, Asian Americans and challenges that, that our communities face in the curriculum. It might look like the exclusion of our community from educational equity initiatives and other policies aimed at um, increasing access and success. Um, it also looks like just the erasure of the lived experiences and realities that we've been talking about underneath this umbrella, right? Mm -hmm. um, for other communities, it looks like a perpetuation of this deficit belief and ideology that blames, um, that actually, that denies that there are inequitable structures that exist, but also then blames the individuals, the families, the communities of color for not working hard enough or not having the right set of values. Um, and so what happens then and what has happened and um, can also happen again in the future is that the myth is used to pit um, Asian Asian Americans against other communities of color. And that type of pitting against each other is a way to hinder social and racial justice efforts. I think it's also important for, for us and for listeners and viewers of this episode to keep in mind that the myth, um, it existed, it exists before the students arrive onto campus and it'll exist thereafter, right? So it's, it's, a, continu it's a continual thing and there's a particular way that the myth shows up um, on campus. And so I'll, I'll share a little bit about my lived experience with it, even though at the time I didn't really understand what was happening. Um, but for me, it looked like my high school guidance counselor telling me to not apply for the Gates Millennium Scholarship Program um, because they were probably not looking for students who looked like me. And at the time I was like, I don't understand, but I guess if this person's telling me not to do it, then I'll, I'll you know, I'll, okay, it's fine. Um, but it wasn't until I worked with the National Asian American Education nonprofit that supported Asian American Pacific Islander students who were Gates scholars that I realized, no, I was absolutely eligible. I was probably someone they were looking for because I was first gen, low income, you know, daughter of refugees, and I was wrongly advised to not apply. Um, but also through my work with this program, I also realized the Gates scholars who were awarded these wonderful financial scholarships to help them go to college, they were still navigating policies on campus that made it really difficult for them to access the necessary supports that they needed to be successful in college. So the long and the short of it, the short answer is it persists in society in general and on our college campuses in particular because systemic racism and white supremacy still exists. And the myth is a violent tool to maintain that system. So the day we don't talk about it anymore is probably the day that white supremacy starts crumbling. And I look forward to that day. And I also appreciate you sharing your personal story and how it in how uh, model minority myth intersects with with um, with your story. So, Wendy, you know, kind of building off of the the numbers on the size of our community. If you look at and combine the APETA population. Many folks can see that as strength in number, um, you know, building off your coalition comments earlier, but this may come with negative outcomes. And what concerns you when communities are merged together like that? 
Yeah, I, I think I think there's a lot of different kinds of, of things, right? I shared a little bit about, you know, some of the ways when I talk to staff and faculty and sometimes students, right, on my campus, um, they're they're expecting that all these people that we put under this descriptor, right, are the same, right? And so they expect that everyone will need the same thing or experiencing the same thing, will react the same way. Um, and and the, the, the fact is that it <laughs> it's hundreds of different ways that the population of my campus is going to react to any one kind of thing um, that sometimes means, okay, well, this might happen here and this might happen here. And so it's, it's this weird thing of trying to, and, and I'm one person, right? So I look at this as, as a campus where I'm the one staff member expected to explain the hundreds of ways that somebody is going to react in a way that everybody else can predict and is going to understand. And so that that's really challenging to do because it's not possible, right? Like it just, it's, it isn't going to happen that way. Um, what that looks like a lot of times um, when, when we're seeing this is that we get this big data number, right? Um, I, I imagine that most of the people, if you're watching or listening and you can go look on your institutional research page to go look for statistics, you won't see Pacific Islander even named unless you're in Hawaii. <laughs> and a couple of other campuses will do it. Um, sometimes you have to dig a little further if you want to go find it. But but you probably aren't finding that so that, and if you go ask, hey, where's the number? Well, it's under Asian. Why wouldn't you know that it's there? Because it's different and because somebody just put it there. And um, it probably says Asian, even if they have disaggregated international students instead of Asian American, because there's a bunch of other things that are also wrapped into some of the other stuff we talked about. And um, this other thing called perpetual foreigner stereotype that just assumes that everybody is foreign um, and it's not necessary to put that there. So we have that there, right? And if we look at the US census, the number of ethnic groups and people who mark Asian and write in their ethnic group is well over 60 different ethnic populations, right? So there could be 60 different things under there with um, the multiples of different kinds of migration patterns and histories in the US and, and all of these other kinds of cultural language types of differences that are now under this one category. So what happened, and they're all different sizes, right? So um, on, on my campus, the smallest group that we count, because we don't count them all, is 20 people. And that population in the state of California has one of the highest or the, the lowest rates of access to higher education, retention in higher education, and graduation in higher education. The largest of those populations is about is over 3,000, right? And that group has one of the highest rates of access to higher education, retention in higher education, and graduation rates from higher education in the state. And now we put this group of 20 in the same group as this group of 3,000, and now what you can't see is anything about those 20 people in this large data number. So I do a lot of talking about invisibility because the other thing that happens is on a campus like mine, which is going to vary, right? They're going to look at this and say, compared to the state, this large number of everybody we put together um, represents a higher percentage of students in the undergraduate population, because nobody's looking at the graduate students, than in the state. And so you're therefore overrepresented. 
So I don't need to be worried about anybody in this block. And what it has done it has made all of that stuff that I talked about, the differences of people and how they experienced higher education and the stories that they came from, where there's refugee populations, where there are undocumented students, where there's, um, you know, first generation low income students, independent of that, into this group that has just kind of glossed over and said, you're overrepresented. We're not concerned about you. You're the largest group here or, or whatever else. So then we combine that with the model minority myth. It is, you don't need anything. And we don't have to worry about what is happening in this block because most of you are at some high part percentages going to graduate. So if it doesn't happen, but if all of those 20 students I said in that small group drop out, that number compared to this whole group of people that they're in isn't significant for anyone to have noticed that everybody in that ethnic group didn't make it. And that's that's really bad, right? If we said that about any other group, people would know there would be a task force who's <laughs> trying to figure out what is happening with this, this group of students. Instead, I go and ask questions, right? That, that group on my campus is Hmong. Hey, so we're worried about our Hmong students and whatever else. And they're like, yeah, yeah, but Wendy, Asian Americans, so no, 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 I wasn't talking about everybody, just some of these smaller groups. Um, I'm lucky if they know who I'm talking about. I'm lucky if they've heard the word Hmong before, you know? So, so yeah, so it's this, this interesting thing. And, and what happens too is that those students, those, those 20 Hmong students think I'm different than the rest of even the Asian American administrators that they interact with, because I know who they are, right? Mm -hmm. I, I recognize that they exist on the campus. We have about 50 Sri Lankan students. They're surprised I knew what that was, right? Um, we have students who are like that, and that, that makes it difficult when they're supposed to look at also the Asian American staff and faculty on the campus and say, oh, well, you're someone will say, oh, well, they're Asian American or they're Asian, go, go, go see them. They might already just have looked and said, I don't have anything in common with that person. Do they even know anything about me, my experiences, my culture? Um, and that, that creates a lot of other challenges. I have to go in and kind of prove it. Yes, I know my last name is Sasaki. I'm here, I promise. I understand. I'm trying to make sure that people understand what, what you're experiencing or you're going through. I know you need, um, to find each other because there's only 20 of you. So I'm going to help you figure out that proactively rather than right, right. help you find the student organization. So it, it's, it's a lot of different kinds of challenges that are kind of different with what happens when you put yeah. everybody together. It, it's this challenge of, you know, taking small groups with larger groups, you combine it and we, we, some, we, we lose the, we lose and there's students who are, who are truly impacting, we lose sight of them and they fall through the gaps. And, well, and you lose the texture of like, right. who is in this group, right? right? Right, Like, you know, everybody on this, this call, right? Like we all identify differently. We wouldn't necessarily, you know, like there might be some overlaps in the ways that we experience culture or, or talk <laughs> to our families or, um, celebrate things right and there's also differences in the ways that we do that but this grouping would assume that it's all the same thank you, know, you. just a quick thing on, mm -hmm. um, i think when uh, when he was talking about you know numbers and talking to the institutional research office and you know thinking about where the two students right 
and oftentimes it's clubbed under, let's say, Asian group, under the Asian, Asian umbrella. But the other times you also hear people saying, well, it's, two, it's only two people, they're insignificant, right? So when you think about it in a statistical way, um, they don't necessarily have value on that college campus, right? And so it's, it's okay for us to toss them out because they're the outliers. We don't really have to, we account them in under one category or we actually don't have to because they come under the other, right? And, and the other part of it is also, I think we're talking about um, geography of where people, you know, are, where are ethnic groups, ethnic enclaves, if you will, for, for lack of a better way to phrase it. Um, in, I was recently on a call talking about HBCUs and HSIs and how those campuses are grappling with how do they serve the Apito community because they haven't necessarily, you know, going back to Jackie's point about the model minority myth, now, these are communities that um, like HBCs have also bought into the idea that now, well, Asian, Asian folks, they know how to do this. You know, they, they're good at a few things and they can be successful in college. But then when you think about Louisiana and then think about the Vietnamese population there, how do you support? Now, if you have, if you have, a, if you have a community college there, um, whether it's, it's, it's along the coast um, where the Vietnamese folks came and you know, resettled uh, as refugees, right? And so how do, you, how do you then shift from this idea of, of, of APIDA students at predominantly white institutions, but they also exist at these MSIs, the minority serving institutions, and how do we serve them? Because you know, we get lost even in that mix too, right? And, and so what do we do? Thank you. I'm gonna shift um, our direction and I wanna um, raise a topic that has been um, obviously in the news recently um, and, and, and the violence that's been occurring. I wanna talk about the impact of anti-Asian racism violence, um, obviously, um, within our community nationally and on college campuses and uh, reports are coming in and indicating that since the, uh, the beginning of the pandemic as well, there has been, and this is a staggering number for me, 1,900% rate um, um, increase of hate crimes against our community, particularly towards our elderly. Um, and Jackie, I wanna direct this question to you, but what are the implications to our PETA community um, uh, on college campuses? What comes up for you? Thanks for the question. Um, this is this is me speaking in draft form. This might be draft number two, maybe. Um, I uh, shout out to Amplify RJ for sharing that language of speaking in draft. Um, so for viewers and listeners, this is a draft as of Thursday, March 25th. Um, there are a couple of things that come up for me. And as, as someone who's a, a very well-socialized academic, I'm gonna go to my heart and not my head. Uh, so a, a counter to the, the, the academic socialization. Um, what comes for, for me is immense rage, like immense, immense levels of rage. Rage at the continued invisibility of community members, even in death. You know, even we're dying, there's, there's, there's not a visibility. Um, so it's a slightly surprising that there is a little bit more visibility, but in that, that visibility, there's also invisibility happening. So it's, um, I, I have, um, I'm angry at the erasure of misogyny as a critical component of these shootings, um, especially in Atlanta. I'm, I'm enraged by the erasure of social class and generational status as, a, as critical components of this violence. So 
you know, part of this rage is connected to um, ongoing rage by uh, particularly Black women in the community who who have said for, for a long time now, even after Kimberly Crenshaw gifted our world with this concept of intersectionality, we're still unable to see the interconnected natures of race, class, gender, and that these forms of oppression are happening um, and are lived and are experienced simultaneously in ways that are impossible to really pull apart. And to, to, to pull them apart is dehumanizing. So there's a lot of rage. Um, and then the flattening, right? That, you know, Wendy was talking about this flattening of, of the community. And I'm also grieving. Um, I am trying not to cry, but I think the grieving is, you know, folks have been killed, you know, who are, who are trying to make a living and trying to make a life. And that to me is, is, is really painful because I see my, my family's experiences in, in these individuals' experiences, these families' experiences. They're very, they, they evoke very um, familiar, um, images and emotions and textures to, to my upbringing. And, and I'm, I'm grieving that Asian women and our elders are being treated like they're disposable and insignificant. So um, I'm also hurting with many in people in our communities who are, who, are, who are hurting. And also for those who have decided, you know what, no one's gonna pay attention anyway. So why am I even gonna be bothered to feel anything about this? So all of this um, has been has been up for me. As far as like thinking about our Peter communities on college campuses, um, I'm I'm not anyone who knows me knows I'm not necessarily an optimistic person. I'm actually quite on the skeptical side, um, but I think what keeps me going in um, among all this that's happening, all this rage and grief and feelings, um, is is discovering and highlighting the possibilities that even in such pain that there are some possibilities for, for a better future. Um, so one of those are you know, possibilities that moving forward, hopefully we're better able to articulate and connect what's happening, these heinous acts to the US empire in history and in the present. There are possibilities for individual healing, but also collective healing. Like this conversation we're having right now is part of my collective healing. Uh, because we're, we're holding each other virtually, but closely um, during this time, but we're also um, being held by other communities of color. And for me, particularly Black communities and Black women and femmes in particular, are, 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 I, I feel right that type of support. Um, and, you know, I think I'm also motivated by the possibility to see through the crabs in a barrel mentality, the fighting over crumbs and small slices of pie crap that we all got to deal with. But the possibility of working towards um, collective liberation um, with other communities of color, with um, Black folks um, to combat um, racism on campus um, and the, the way that the um, military and prison industrial complexes have invaded our college campuses. Um, there are possibilities um, and that, that keeps me going. I was gonna. Um, I think. I, thank you. Thank you, Jackie, for that. Yeah. I mean, it's when you when you speak from your heart, it's always um, it's always hard to follow that, that kind of because you know, we, all of this is a, kind of like an intellectual exercise, right? In many ways, but and it is also so deeply, deeply um, who we are as people, right? And so, so for me, it, it's 
it's it's been interesting, right? I mean, we're, we're talking about COVID, um, a year of COVID, um, that all of us are exhausted. Um, you know, the, the foggy mind has been there for a whole year. And, and then on top of that, you have um, the shootings. And I still remember I was, I was shopping, my mom and I were at H Mart um, shopping. And um, I, don't, I don't think we, I mean, I didn't pay attention to my phone going off, right? I didn't really think about it. And then when I got home was when I realized that didn't happen. And part of it was for me, you know, anything is South Asian, uh, Daisy South Asian is, is how do I, how do I fit within within the narrative, right? Because I, not one person has actually talked about this with me. You know, where I work, the people that I know, other than my Asian, you know, Asian family, right? Um, other folks have not reached out to say, hey, how are you feeling about this, right? So one, this going back to the idea of invisibility within that structure, right? And then two, how do I also, as somebody who's really not, like I wasn't impacted with the misogyny. Um, I wasn't impacted with quote unquote, you know, uh, people started talking about, and I think I think it was a couple of days after people started saying, well, we need to say East Asian, right? We need to categorize this, or well, how, do we, how do we frame these people in a way that actually represents them and not just you now collapse them under the Asian umbrella. And so for me, th those were points where I'm like, okay, how can I be part of the conversation rather than think of myself as this is not impacting me, right? And, and I still remember that I think the next day I told my mom, no, you're not going out to walk on, by yourself because I don't know what's going to happen, right? This, uh, this is going to give somebody permission to do something to us. And, and we can think of this as, oh, it happened to another community, right? But in the larger context of who we are, we're all Asian. And you know, I think of this as the Asian family, right? And so, so when, when you think about students on college campuses, not necessarily understanding the coalition building that needs to happen to support each other, because we're, we're literally one gunshot away from, you know, from following the previous community. And, and that's how white supremacy works. It's going to divide us and then kill us. And so how do we then work together to make sure that, that doesn't happen so that we don't dehumanize another community in our understanding of what this is, right? When the second shooting happened in Colorado, God, like, I mean, I, I, I was like, I, I, I didn't want to even look at the, the TV because I was like, well, is this, a, is this the second now imitation now that's going to happen? And it, what, you know, I have cousins who live in, 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 in Boulder. And, and so part of me was like, okay, how do we, how do we reconcile with this, right? And especially at a grocery store. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. And, and I think part of it is how do, we, how do we keep engaging our students? Because sometimes it's, it's the education that's gonna make the difference for them to understand who they are um, and how we belong together. Thank you, Vijay. I think that it, it's the education and I think to how you both brought your voices into uh, this conversation and to this specific question, it's about being vulnerable. So I, I, I thank you both. Um, Jackie, thank you for sharing uh, and, and really speaking from the heart and um, both of you also from, from, uh, from the head because I think that that's how having these conversations um, and connecting the two allows us to just to move forward, to heal, to educate, and, and to persist. Uh, so thank you both. Um, a close tie to, you know, obviously we, we've had these incidents and it, it concerns me about the mental health among, among our APIDA communities. Uh, and, and historically, 
um, within our communities, it's oftentimes hidden. And researchers would often describe how we do that as avoidant coping strategies. Um, I think about my own personal experience. I'm often, I was raised to, to minimize my pain, you know, not to, not to disclose um, for bringing potentially uh, the belief that I would bring shame to the family or show signs of weakness. And, and you know, obviously with the recent awareness of anti-Asian racism, um, Wendy, I'd like to direct this question to you. How is this impacting the mental health of our community? And um, to connect it back to the college space, how can university leaders, student first professionals, help our APIDA community um, in, in, um, as it intersects with their mental health, the students' mental health? Earlier about uh, the model minority myth, right? And that that's already something that has affected our students and that has also already affected, you know, people's mental health and the ways that they think about help. So combined with what you, you just shared, right, culturally, all of the PETA kind of ethnic groups generally are communalistic kinds of cultures and communities. You go into this understanding that you're part of this bigger whole. It's not just about you. It's about your immediate family, your extended family, the community that you're in, the culture, the group, right? And so those things might affect. But if you bring those things back, right? Sometimes it is, you can't say these things because other, you know, like that'll affect the rest of the group in this way that they'll, they'll judge or, or it, people might think that about the rest of the group, but also I don't want to burden everybody else. And so I should be able to take care of that. And then when you compound, compound that with the model minority myth, right? It is the, and everyone expects that I'm okay and will be able to figure this out on my own. And since we're all not talking about it, then what that means is everyone assumes that everyone else has figured it out on their own, right? Well, I'm the only one who's dealing with this because I don't see anybody else dealing with this because they must just be figuring it out by themselves. And this just compounds, right, to the, I can't ask for help. And so um, what we're seeing too with COVID and everyone, you know, like, initially, right, it was just everyone needs to be remote, was that meant that everyone was hearing these things, not in spaces where they were with other people, by themselves. So any chance that you had where you could have seen somebody struggling with how they were re reacting to somebody saying something racist, you know, we, we've seen incidents at college campuses where classes have been Zoom bombed. If you're in a room by yourself and you see that, you aren't in a room where somebody has yelled that in a classroom and saw other people who identified like you reacting, right? Mm. And so, so there's this pulled back of maybe this only affected me this way. And what does this mean when I go outside? <laughs> you know I mean, like some of the things that Vijay was sharing about like you I, telling, telling his mom, you can't go outside and walk because I don't know what's going to happen has been part of some of the ways that um, some of our students that I have sometimes felt about like, can I go outside by myself? Is it going to be okay? I'm certainly not doing it after dark. And, you know, all of these other kinds of things when we have students who are needing to also do things like grocery shop or, you know, attend, if they, if they still have to attend a class and do that on public transportation or, or the, any of the other types of things that we're doing. So we see those things compound. Um, and what we see on our campuses 
and what has been the the existing structure is that there I've I've been speaking on mental health for over 15 years in student affairs and um, one of the things that has not changed is the feeling that we have enough culturally competent counselors on our campuses to 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 work with this population who we see mostly. It, by the time they are willing to go to counseling and psychological services when they are at crisis. Um, and, and so what does, what does that look like? And, and how do, if, if all that other stuff that I was saying about what happens when we put everyone in the same group, then gets applied here, how do I then get that counseling group to look like the diversity of the students that we, that, that also exists on campus and the ways that they might be responding and differently, right? So COVID has pro provided more than one challenge besides what people are seeing in anti-Asian racism um, and the incident in Atlanta. We've seen more mass deportations to Southeast Asian uh, American um, people. All, you know, like there, there are challenges with healthcare. Um, there's a lot of healthcare workers in different parts at different levels. Um, in Asian American communities who have been differently affected. Um, there's undocumented populations who have different access to healthcare, like all of these different things. So you pick any combination of those things and those things ramp up. And then how do you talk about that when you're in a group that culturally you might not supposed to be talked to somebody about it. Um, the institution you're in expects that you're fine. So you don't need to talk to anybody. And that's why you've never asked for any of this kind of thing before. And you don't need help. Like sometimes that's literally the words you're gonna be fine, you don't need help. I started to change language in the ways that I talk to students around this, that it's not help, right? Because as soon as I say the word help, like <laughs> forget it, like that, that's only something you need in crisis, right? So before crisis, how is this preventative? How are we talking about what it means to explore the different resources that you have? How are you being a good problem solver about what's going on? Um, how do you still have the energy to continue to do all of the things? Because sure, okay, maybe you are good at this. And maybe the way to be better at this is to use this free service that is part of the toolkit that we provided you as a university because we know you needed it already. Otherwise it wouldn't be here, wouldn't be free, right? Like those are different ways to talk about some of those things. And then trying to make sure that where we have the opportunities to kind of figure out who we do have on the different staffs, whether that's our counseling and psychological services staff, whether that's some community partners, whether that's um, other staff that are not in those departments but can help refer, right? Like where are the places where we can slowly start to get people into these places of, okay, how do we understand, how, how, how do I get this student to get more comfortable towards this place of talking to somebody earlier? The ways that we're gonna do this stuff has to be preventative. Um, all the ways that we're trained about suicide prevention in college campuses does not serve this population because we're not seeing them in the same ways until, until crisis. So we have to do something to prevent the crisis rather than wait till pre-crisis to go do something. So there's um, some of these things that, that are parts of those processes. I think the other thing is that we have to figure out how to diversify um, the staff, particularly in our counseling centers, um, and in some of the other places that might provide some of the kind of counseling supports, if that's academic advising, if that's career services, because students will go to those places to go try and figure that out. 
um, you know, or figure out some of the other kinds of things that might be side effects of what's going on. Um, how, how do we have more people who represent the diversity of the students that are coming, who are under, who, who are culturally competent, understand these things, and how are we also working with folks to um, encourage more folks to go into those fields who have some interest, and then maybe come back and make sure that those departments are kind of well suited. I, I think what we're seeing generally outside of APETA populations is a higher need for mental health services and things like that on our college campuses. And so when we see those staffs increase, if we're not seeing diverse counselors in those spaces, then, then that's a problem. If we're not seeing diverse counselors who have different other identities, right? We're not seeing queer counselors if we're um, like, I don't know a Pacific Islander counselor at a college anywhere, <laughs> you know, like how, how do we, how do we find those folks? How do we recruit them to, to this? How, how do we retain them at our college campuses? Cause this is also hard work for them. So it, it also means understanding that what has it meant for the staff and faculty who sometimes are the people that now get leaned on, right? Um, and, and how, how are, how are we being cared for? Cause that doesn't always happen either on that side. Right. Um, so watching my colleagues leave and leave the field, right. Um, has been hard because you look at some of those things like, oh, we needed you. You were really, you were really good students, loved you. And this was hard for you. It was hard for you to be here. So thinking about, um, the impact that has when we're when we're looking at students who need people to talk to, and sometimes the the person on, on the campus is in, in the counseling psychological services. Sometimes they're in academic advising. Sometimes they're in multicultural affairs. Sometimes they're faculty, right? And if we can't keep them um, or retain them on our campuses, um, we've not just lost this person's knowledge, right? We've lost the ways that they've supported full populations of students um, and probably retain those students, right? Um, and, and, and so it, it kind of compounds that loss. So we need to find some ways to kind of think about some of those things and in a different kind of holistic way. There's a lot of labor that a lot of people of color <laughs> do on campuses outside of our job that um, I think we need to figure out how to support differently. Thank you, Wendy. Um you brought awareness. I think you, you, you lended some strategies and, and I think that it's not also just the individuals um, of PETA students uh, and their own mental health, but, you know, oftentimes they're bringing um, the issues that their families may also be struggling with because that's a big part um, of their existence. Um, we are at time um, and um, you know, we always close with a question um, and, you know, this podcast is called Student First Now. And, and if you can really take a minute um, to summarize what you're pondering, questioning, excited about, or troubling you now, um, uh, this is how we like to close our show. So I'm going to um, turn to Jackie. Why don't you kick us off? Sure. Um, and the first thing I'll share, you know, is really connected to what Wendy um, really highlights um, in what you just talked about, Wendy. Right now, one thing I am deeply troubled by is how many faculty, supervisors, peers, classmates are just moving about their day like this is normal. 
none of this, and I'm gesturing wildly for listeners, this, none of this is normal, but there's, there's this, there's this, error that we can just move about the day like it's normal and and completely not recognizing the enormous amount of labor and stress that many of our students both undergrad and graduates our colleagues are handling and holding um, as we still you know deal with perpetual racism sexism and other forms of oppression and at the same time um, I'm really excited about the possibilities that um, the number of ethnic studies legislation is present across the country. Like it just brings me so much joy and excitement um, because I, I hope that this legislation can bring to our formal education the opportunities that I know exist within you know, Asian American studies and ethnic studies um, that could really help shift conditions on our, on our college campuses for not just future APITA students, but also other students of color. Wendy. So I think a lot of things, but the one that I think I'm going to talk about <laughs> now is, you know, I, I think in June, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of state colleges put out, universities put out statements. There were a lot of different organizations that were saying things about how to move forward. There's a lot of people who are committing to learning. And I started to re-see some of those things in the last month because more of the things around um, what was happening in Asian American communities was was coming up and people were, you know, I'm, I'm going to commit to learning. And and I think I have just decided, no, learning was the expectation, right? Like we're supposed to do that. The point of learning, though, all, all of these things that we were learning about anti-Blackness and how to combat anti-Asian hate and all these other things, right, was to apply it. I need people to apply it now, right? Like, there's a lot of things that have been said um, and, and a lot of, I'm going to go, I'm going to go, I'm going to go read about that. Okay. And then come back and tell me what you're going to do about it. Because um, there's been a lot of people who have for, for, I guess, generations maybe said, I'm going to go learn that. And they finished reading the thing and put it down and said, okay, well, that was nice. And maybe that's where we get to people, you know, going about their day and doing the things. But um, I, I think the ways that we have been outraged in the moment around a thing that happened and decided that we needed to learn more means that we are then expected to use what we're learning and apply those things to policy, to um, the way we do our work, um, the ways that we're teaching other people, the ways that we're choosing to give our money, if that's what we're doing, right? That, that there has to be more than just, I'm going to go learn it. I'm going to go learn it with the purpose of applying it and doing something different. So, um, so I say that to mean a lot of things, but you know, if this is the thing that you have chosen to learn by listening to this, um, I, I hope that you take a second no, you need more than a second. But you take a few moments after this to think about what this means you're going to do now that you have this information. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And Jay, why don't, you, why don't you close this up? Well, um, you know, for me, first I have to thank, um, you know, thank Wendy and, and Jackie for, for allowing me to be part of your conversation too today. Um, I, think, I think for me, um, 
even as as we were you know having this conversation you know just in the with this recording too i i had to go back and you know really quickly think about how humbling it is to actually be here today right um that an immigrant kid who didn't really understand my own racial identity is still working through all of that right and i think you know i think wendy and i were talking about this you know i, I still remember i think it was acp or what when i met wendy years years ago maybe two decades ago um and and how when you look back in the community that is that i've been able to create for myself right um now starting to count the number of people i know within the peter community and i think it's probably 600 to 700 folks now and i still remember my first apan meeting when i it, it was apan or apancore with one of the two meetings i walked in didn't feel connected because people didn't look like me and i quietly just slipped out right i mean i sat there for 45 minutes or whatever business meeting then i slipped out and i am thinking and and now i am here today with no relying on on my cousins to kind of help me through whatever whether it is my personal life or my professional life that i'm able to tap into the coalition right and so how important was it for me to actually have that support over these years it wasn't you know built overnight but it took took about two decades for me so so folks um you now students who are listening probably for this uh now this episode um think about it right you know that you're going to have those networks the the thing that i'm really really excited about um and this is in a, in a very selfish way um is to think about the dsap group you now the dc student affairs professionals group that's there was a really small group and i still remember when i first started in student affairs i thought of it as four people mamta akapadi simi pandakur najee nair and myself and then now we have 302 people um you now when i look at the facebook group right and and what a what a joy to see that happen and to also understand that i'm in community with my cousins within the apida group right in uh, and i'll close with one, one last thing that i i often I, i usually don't get to say this um when i was taking my student development theory course um i still remember we were talking about asian american identity and it was it was not even a full class it was half a class right because people didn't really have nothing to talk about and i still remember going back then for the next class with a map of a geographic map a third grade map um a blank map to class and asked all of my classmates to to tell me which countries actually made up asia right a simple exercise like that and people were stunned they couldn't name any of the countries and I, so part of me was like how are you going to do the work for the asian community if you don't know who they are right and and so when i think about the faculty who teach in hisa programs because i'm coming in as a putting on my faculty hat right what kind of how are you taking care of the asian community um, within your programs within the student affairs hisa programs and how are you knowledgeable about the hisa community uh, or the apira community right in terms of making sure that those students are supported because often times i i meet apira students at conferences and they tell me that at an institution whether it's now whether it's a desi student or if it's a, a broader apira uh, identification and i would have had a conversation with that faculty member but never had that faculty member mentioned to me that hey we have a student that you may want to connect with or that introduction right and i and i'm hoping that that's something that people actually do it you know do it organically from now on that 
um, the their Peter students, graduate students, and HESA programs also need that support, whether it's at the master's level or the doctoral level. That that hopefully that's something that people can ponder and think about. So, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, all three, um, Jackie, Vijay, Wendy. Um, thank you for being my guests today. Um, I, I will acknowledge and, and point that this is probably one of the hardest episodes I've had to um, host because this is near and dear to me and y'all near and dear to me as well. And I know that um, I'm appreciative of how we support each other in even just doing this episode. Um, I wanna thank everyone out there who is watching or listening. Uh, listeners, just a reminder um, about this and other episodes. If you wanna know more, just subscribe to our Student Affairs Now newsletter. You can also browse our archives at studentaffairsnow.com. Our episode list is getting longer and longer and we're excited to see the attention that it's drawing. Again, I wanna thank our sponsors today, Stylist Publishing and Anthology. Please subscribe to the podcast, invite others to subscribe, share us on social or leave a five-star review. It really helps a conversation like this reach more folks and build our community so we can continue to make this free for all of you. Again, my name is Glenda Guzman. I hope you learned something new. Go out and as, as this panelist beautifully said, go out and do something and go out and do something for yourself and for someone you love. Thank you everyone, take care.